Now, check, check, cool. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm gonna move this one too, if we can. We're gonna take our offering really quick. Um, if you've been part of this church for a while, you know what that means. That means worshiping with your finances, being a part of caring for this um, church, this community, this pretty simple place. Um, I wanted to share a couple of uh, little announcement-y family business things with you. The first one is, is next door to us, the dirt lot that we've all been parking in since we bought the building, it's no longer going to be available for us to park in. So with the church on this side moving out, we were sharing parking with them. Um, but the other church that we bought this building, I know, um, from um, sold that piece of land to somebody else. They've been really gracious, letting us park over there. But it's time for us to start moving our cars this way. So if you didn't know this, we own the parking lot behind the church as well. So if you are um, able to uh, make some steps work for you, um, we would love to have you park over there. And um, we just need to start being on the blacktop. Does that make sense? Which is fine. Winter's coming anyway. No one wants to park out there. Just wanted to let you know that. Uh, a couple other things. There's a women's Bible study that started back up on Saturday mornings. And it's here. It's right downstairs in our little family room area. We'd love to have you be a part of it. There's flyers. All the information is in the back. It's also on our website. And for those of you who work with children in our church, you are being uh, loved on um, in given a ticket to Anderson Farms to bring your family. Um, there's a lot of details to that that I did not remember. Um, all the specifics, that's all on the website as well. Or talk to Katie, because it's just a way for us to thank you for being a part of kids. Um, and so I did parking change. I did, I did it all. I did it. Here's what we're going to do as we transition into some teaching, I wanted to remind us of kind of one of the things I talked about last week. One of the things on my heart is to change a simple word as we hang out together on Sunday mornings. Uh, from <laughs> from uh, this being a service to a gathering. I know that sounds kind of simplistic, but I think there's a huge uh, meaning behind it for us. And so we're actually going to put together a swear jar in the back. And if you say service, you have to put it in, you have to put a dollar in. Just kidding, we're really not going to do that. Um, but the idea is for us to kind of change our mentality from uh, you showing up and just listening and consuming and leaving to showing up with this attitude of participation. And as hard as that is, I know for some of you introverts, it's difficult. Um, your participation might be as simple as, I'm going to make sure I catch one person today and encourage them or pray for them or whatever it may be, okay? And so with that in mind, there's a few other things that I would like to practice and play around with. And one of those is actually being uh, intentional about taking the moment and listening. We are in a world full of noise. Everywhere we go, there's noise. These little phones in our pockets are really hardwired to take our attention. 
And so I think it would be an amazing thing to, from time to time, make this a, really a sanctuary space from the noise, the noise that's in our heads, in our hearts. And so we're going to just take a moment, and for some of you, this might be new. We're going to be still. We're going to pay attention to our breathing. We're just going to be here before we start jumping into other things, okay? So bow your heads. Quiet yourselves. Maybe take a deep breath. Settle into your seat. Open your hands in your lap if you feel comfortable, if you want. And I just want you to be aware of the stress and anxiety that you brought with you to this space, to our gathering. Pay attention to where you feel that. Father, in the quietness of this space, there are specific people, specific hurts, or specific stresses that are in our minds right now. Jesus, we just pray this prayer. Jesus, we give everything and everyone to you. We give everything and everyone to you. Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit, Heal our union with you. A union that's been frayed by our fears and our hurts and our heartache and our disappointment. Heal our union with you. Scripture says that we may be filled with the measure of the fullness of God. That we may be like trees planted by streams of living water. And that Jesus, you say that you've come to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim freedom and for the captives. You do this. And right now we open the door to our wounded hearts for you to do your work as we sit in quiet.
Father, give us your peace. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who conquered death. Amen. Three hundred and thirty-one A.D. A little boy named Julian was born. Cute little Julian. Happens to be one year after the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan was an edict by Emperor Constantine that made violence against Christians illegal. It's a good thing, right? Keep the Christians safe. Because the Christians, by that point, had grown to become one of the biggest groups of people in the empire. And so, uh, politically speaking, Constantine realized this and decided, hey, staying in power is pretty important. I'm going to align myself with this group of Christians. So the Edict of Milan happens. Julian is born in 331. It's his nephew, When Constantine dies, his, the next in line is Constantius. I think I said that right. Constantius wants to make sure that his power stays, he stays in power, um, and he is able to rule the empire. And so what he does is he kills all of Julian's family. And as a young boy, Julian is put into a Christian school, so to speak. He learns all the things that the Christian kids are learning. And until one day when Constantius dies, Julian assumes the role of emperor. He becomes known as Julian the Apostate. And he's known as Julian the Apostate because he is so embittered by what happened to his family, by the Christians in power, that he decides to steer Rome back into the worship of the pagan gods. So the Christians named him, nicknamed him Julian the Apostate. Now, Julian the Apostate only, only uh, ruled for 18 months, but his, his impact was pretty big. Um, he tried his best to steer the Roman Empire back to the worship of pagan gods, but he realized that it had to be a both and. And so he wrote a book called Against the Galileans. And he complained in this book about how Christians lived. But he also at the same time realized that the Christians were doing some good things. They were serving the poor better than the people of Rome were serving the poor. And, and so there was this kind of mixed bag with Julian the Apostate. He, he wanted to worship the, the traditional Roman gods, but he also wanted to allow for the fact that these other Christians could worship. Now, fast forward throughout church history, and church history, let's just be honest, at best it's a mixed bag. For those of us who have studied church history, there's some really beautiful bright spots like uh, Basil the Great, who started the first ever Christian hospital, first ever hospital ever in the known world. It was the, called the, ba I'm going to see if I can say it right, the Basil, it, Basiliad, that's what it was called. And uh, it was a beautiful picture. Then there was 
um, the knights, and there was the hospitaler knights who cared for people. There's, there's, there's just a mixed bag of church history. Let's just be honest. I think it would be kind of silly to kind of sugarcoat church history as all being puppies and rainbows. But along the way, something happens. Some term comes along called Christendom. And the idea of Christendom is Christianity becomes mixed with culture, becomes part of the culture, part of uh, the, the society in which it operates. And you fast forward throughout Europe, and there's many times where state religions are used with power, like brokered with power, on and on and on throughout history. And, and, and slowly you see a change to this, age of enlightenment, all this kind of stuff. I could be nerdy and go on for a long time. All that to say, fast forward to the last two or three decades, and there's been a major shift in how Christianity is viewed and even practiced um, in the last three years, it's like been an acceleration to this. It's just been a huge shift. Now, there's no doubt in my mind and many others' mind that the way of Jesus is exploding in other parts of the world. Latin America, like, listen to this. Some people are saying the biggest missionary explosion, the biggest growth of the gospel right now is happening in Iran. In Iran. Even some, some missiologists say it's even bigger than what's happened the last number of decades in China. And it's happening in Iran, but it's like under the surface. It's hidden. It's secretive. It's, it's struggling to survive, but flourishing, much like it did in the early church before the Edict of Milan. Now, we're an officially, for us in the West, we're officially living in something that uh, sociologists and religious scholars called a post-Christian world, meaning a lot has happened. And we've gone over this before. This is a little bit of a refresher, but it's, this is all set up to where we're going really the next couple months. There's been a major shift. There's been actually three huge cultural shifts that have changed the topography of Christianity in the West. The first one is this. We've moved from a majority to a minority. It used to be that the majority of people that you ran into identified as Christian. And especially in Denver, that's not the case. Um, fastest growing religious segment when Gallup and all these different polls come out, are the people who identify as none. They're called nuns. N-O-N-E-S, nuns. It's a different monastic order. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's a guy named Ryan Berge, and he wrote a, he's a political science professor in eastern Illinois, and he talks about how that category used to be like a rounding error in statistics but now it's one of the biggest chunks of the statistic. Second kind of cultural shift is from the center to the fringe. It used to be that uh, Christians or people who professed faith in Jesus tended to be kind of at the center of things, whether it be government or academics, politics, you know, all the things. And that's um, not the case. And the third shift is kind of this from well-respected to disrespected. Uh, there's a time 
Even, I think, in the late 90s, I can remember that the word Christian kind of had a positive connotation. <laughs> um, and it doesn't really anymore. It, it, some people are on one extreme probably like just keep it to yourself. On the other side, they probably think it's dangerous. Um, some people are like, wow, you still exist? It's just not in their world. But I think there's even another thing that I've noticed the last few years and throughout the pandemic and the political stuff and, and just the divisions that our country and, and different tribes are feeling. I think this hits even closer to home. And I call this big injuries and small cuts. There's been some big injuries to this idea of following Jesus. And that comes from kind of the institutional stuff, like um, scandals, whether it be financial scandals in churches or sexual abuse scandals or whatever it is, non-reporting. Those things are just gross. But then there's the small cuts. And a lot of my conversations with you in the room and people outside of the room have been around this idea of being treated poorly being um, given cliche responses when you're going through something difficult. Um, I mean, you feel it, right? Maybe? It just feels like um, something is wrong, something's missing, um, that, it's, that this whole idea of following Jesus has lost its power. There's been a lot of, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word or phrase, there's been a lot of uh, churches that have really oriented themselves around growth and getting bigger as an institution and even maybe some church brand worship. It has kind of made us feel weird. And heck, here's the deal. I've probably injured you in some way or another um, with things I don't say properly or well. <laughs> or think about. But some people think that there's something wrong. And I just think that there's something shifting. And I'm hopeful, but we'll get to that here in a second. Last week, I talked about there are people who are asking the question, sincerely asking the question, what is the point of this? What are we doing here? And there's some cognitive dissonance when people who claim to be Christians live fearfully and anxiously and live and speak and act in a way that's really contrary to the way of Jesus. And we just feel like this, this break. And so some of you are sitting there right now and you're like, Ryan, this sermon's really depressing. Um, but I, I just want us to have an exercise in what I like to call reading the room. Do you know, you know what I mean by reading the room? Like when, you, when you're somewhere and you can tell that people don't really, aren't really catching what's going on around them. This happened to me this week, um, and, and I was at the funeral for Officer Dylan. And if you were here last week, there was... Um, there was, I started off with a lot of tears, but um, um, it's just been really a heavy week around the city and around the police department. And, 
And this week, I had the opportunity to be with the officers at the funeral. And as all of our Arvada PD were lined up, awaiting Dylan's casket, and they were standing at attention, and it was late morning, hot sun, and it's quiet. There was this lady from the city, somewhere connected to the city, that decided that this would be a great moment for a selfie. And so she positioned herself where she could be seen in the picture, and behind her are all these officers lined up. And I'm like, lady, read the room. Right? Like, read the room. This isn't time for selfies. And I think that in some ways, this is a chance for us as followers of Jesus to, in a sense, read the room. And that's what I want us to do because I believe that Jesus' vision for the people of God is a community of peace. A community who live in this deep place of quiet calm of God. One that doesn't become like the culture around us and, and, and on the one hand, but also doesn't hide out either, right? Kind of a third way, and I'll talk a little bit more, more about that here in a second. But this idea goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The Hebrew word tov is a word that's used to describe who God is, what we are made to be, and what we're invited into as the people of God. And, I, and it really, over the next number of weeks, is kind of a vision series because I want us to reimagine the kind of church, the kind of community we want to become, moving from one that might be dealing with the anxiety of the culture around us to one that's like more about calm and peace and possibility of the way of life that God really has for us. But what is Tov? What does this three-letter Hebrew word tov mean? Well, you've maybe heard the, the, the Yiddish phrase mazel tov. Anybody heard that one? Yeah? Um, it's a phrase expressing congratulation and wishing someone good luck. The word tov typically is translated for us in English good. But, I mean... If you've ever been around Hebrew words, they mean much more than what we think they mean. So what does good, what does tov mean? Well, the first use of this is in Genesis, and it's when God creates, and every time he creates something, he calls it tov. And then he creates humanity, and he calls humanity what? Very tov. So what does this mean? Now, what you always need to remember is that Hebrew is often, Hebrews, they often relate descriptions to functionality. So the word tov is best translated with this, this word functional. I know that sounds kind of boring, but it's like when, when God created something, he called it functional. But that doesn't seem totally right either. It's... Um, it's when Yahweh looks at his handiwork, he did not see that it was just good in the sense that we, we read it in English. He sees that it's functional. It's kind of like a well-oiled and well-tuned machine. It works, and it works exactly how it's supposed to work. 
Don't you like to create something that works? For some of you who are in the software biz, you know, like, oh, it works. The code works, you know? For those of you who fix engines and, or build things, like, it worked. There's something really satisfying about that. And it's kind of like the tree in the garden in Genesis. It's the tree of the knowledge of what? Tov? <laughs> And ra. The word evil in Hebrew is ra. It's actually a word that means dysfunctional, chaos, backwards. And so tov is this super small but infinitely expansive word that's arguably one of the richest words in scripture. And it first arrives on scene, like I said, in the creation story, and we're going to jump into that. It's day three of the creation story. Genesis 1, it says this, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And the beauty of this is this kind of like progressive movement. Like God didn't just create plants, and God didn't just create trees. He created plants and trees with the ability to produce more plants and trees. And seed-bearing plants, it says, according to their kinds, and, and that they could produce vegetation over and over again. It's like this. Metaphorically speaking, if you and I are like trees and plants, hang with me. If we are trees and plants and we drop seeds, but none of them grow, no tove. There's no tove there. There's no life-producing goodness there. Now, if we drop seeds and it produces plants and trees, and then those plants and trees don't produce plants and trees, there's still no tov. And so what would Yahweh call good? Anything that produces life and contains the potential for more life within it. And think of a seed becoming an orchard uh, or, or think about this. Think of a conversation or a story or something that has sparked within you some sort of life lately. Think of something that has been offered to you from somebody else that has stirred within you this desire to seek something better. I'm going to throw this on the screen because this is my attempt at a definition. The Hebrew word tov does not mean merely pleasant or pleasurable, which is what good means for us, right? Those are good tacos or those are whatever. It means capable of, presently engaged in the process of, and destined for completely fulfilling the divine purpose for which it was created. That's tov. So I think scripture is a little choosier when it comes to applying the label good. Now there's this crazy story in the Old Testament. It comes out of 1 Kings 3, chapter 9. Solomon says to Yahweh this. He says, 
Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between Tov and Ra. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? So Solomon asks God for what is called a discerning heart, which is in Hebrew pronounced lev shem, shem. I don't know why I do this to myself. I don't know why I do it. Why do I try to do this? But the purpose behind Yahweh giving Solomon a hearing heart or a discerning heart is so Solomon can govern God's people well, discerning between good and evil. Shortly after this, you know the story. What happens is, is two prostitutes show up at Solomon's doorstep with a baby they both claim to be their own son, which it happens You know, it's just one of those things that happen. And so Solomon does this thing where he, some of you know the story, he devises a test intended to reveal which woman will choose Tov. And he makes this test up, and it's a gruesome test uh, to basically cut the child in half and give each of them half of this child. But the woman's response is in the face of a death threat to the child, Solomon discerns who the true mother is. The woman who cares more about the life of the child than her own desire to rear the child is the one who's the real mother. Now, Scripture, that's just one little example, Scripture speaks abundantly about Tov. Genesis 50, 20, the end of the story of Joseph and his brothers. Remember, they threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery. There's a whole bunch of fun going on there. (laughs) And Amari's having fun, isn't he? It's all Tov, Amari. It's all Tov. He says this, "You you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We read this in Psalm 23, 6. Surely your toveness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Tov is talked about all throughout Scripture. It's this concept of assessing the fruit that one person or a group of people bring forth in their life. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So really quick, back to the creation account before I try my best to finish this up. We read about God breathing seeds of life into plants, and trees, and these seeds were meant to what? Not only grow the plant and tree, but then those plants and trees would produce seeds. Genesis 2-7, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Basically, what I read out of this Hebrew text is it's not just the plants and the animals that produce life, it's us. 
And it's our turn to bring forth the seeds of life within us. Seeds of encouraging, loving, interceding, healing, designing, building, creating, on and on and on. Because that's tov. That's how we were meant to be. That's how the people of God were meant to be. And that's where we get to our passage that Paige read in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, this is Peter writing to the people of God who are feeling the heat of what it looks like to stay the course. And just to recap, this idea of Tov is a harmony with God, functional, on purpose, as it should be, good and beautiful, fulfilled divine purpose intended from our creation. Listen to what Peter says. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises the goodness of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. We are a royal priesthood. We represent the goodness of God to the world, all of us. Wherever you live, whatever you do, That's what we do. That's, what, that's our purpose. That's our divine calling. That's our, that's our intended result. Now, one of the things that gives me encouragement is to look back on the early first followers of Jesus. And they were a cagey mess. <laughs> Sometimes it's really easy to I'd make it kind of like this idyllic time, right? You know, we read Acts chapter, well, the first few chapters in Acts, and there's this passage where they're like all meeting together and sharing with each other, and it just sounds so good. But they were kind of a mess, too. They didn't do it all right. They didn't do it perfect at all. They kind of bumped their way through, figured it out as they went. They did it what, what sociologists call a third way. The first way to live was the way of the Jewish people. The Jewish people, they could literally adopt the way the Jewish people left, lived, and they just kind of had this agreement with Rome that said, you just go ahead and be Jewish over here, and as long as you don't interfere we're going to let you just be Jewish. Then there was the Roman way, which was this idea of let's just add Jesus to the pantheon of Roman gods. You go ahead and worship Jesus as long as you also worship the emperor and Zeus and everybody else. 
But the followers of Jesus chose a third way. And it was a harder way. Now, for me, I hear story after story of people of the people of God either being formed by the culture around them, whether it's entertainment, politics, the pursuit of wealth. And I also hear story and story after people of, uh, of the people of God um, holding themselves off from all of anything that's in this world. And so I just, I just think it's a, it's a moment in time in the life of our church and maybe in the life of the church to remind ourselves of who we are and who we're called to be. And the good news is, is I, I can't, I don't know about you, but I just cannot shake the words of Jesus. I can't shake them. And I shared this with you a little bit last week. I cannot shake them. And I don't get it all right all the time, and I mess this up, and I, I maybe get sucked into things culturally, and all, all, all of it. But when he says, come, follow me, take on my yoke, take on my teaching, this is a, a follow my rhythm of unforced grace. I just want to share with you where we're headed this fall. We're going to be talking about the way of Tov that is peace. We're going to be talking about empathy. We're going to be talking about grace. We're going to be talking about family. We're going to be talking about being a people that is about rest and not exhaustion. We're going to be talking about worshiping God alone. We're going to be talking about being a calm presence in our world in an age of absolute freak-out anxiety. We're going to be talking about mercy. And so I want to leave you with a long quote. One of the things I do a lot of is read. It's partly kind of, I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a way for me that I can worship um, is by using my mind. So there's a long quote I'm going to read you, and then I'm going to pepper you with a few questions. That's also what I do. This is from Gerald Sitzer, who is a historian of the church. He says, as long as Christians assume we are living under the old arrangement of Christendom, the church will continue to decline in the West, no matter how ferociously Christians fight to maintain power and privilege. If anything, the harder Christians fight, the more precipitous the decline will be. For cultural power and privilege will come at an increasingly high price. Christians will either accommodate until the faith becomes almost unrecognizable, or they will isolate until their faith becomes virtually invisible. Now as then, the church needs disciples who trust in and confess that Jesus is Lord and try to live accordingly, who orient their lives around the worship of the triune God and understand the Christian story as their story who view themselves as new creatures in Christ and as members of a global community of faith and strive to imitate Jesus in all areas of life. Nothing short of a change in culture will suffice. 
From a culture of entertainment, politics, personality, and program to a culture of discipleship. Such a radical change will require patience, steadiness, and purposefulness. See, I think the early church gives us this idea of a third way, and it's not perfect. And so here's some questions I want to give you. May these be something that rattle around in your head and your heart. Maybe these are something that you find time to grab coffee with somebody or you talk about on your way home. What would it take for you, wherever you're at today, you're here, you're gathered here, as hard as it was for you to push yourself through those doors, what would it take for you, what would it take for us to re-engage with the dream of God again? What would it take? How willing are you to be curious about your place in the way of Tov? What kind of healing do you need to experience when it comes to the church? What kind of community do you need to pursue for that to happen? And maybe, maybe this is a, a better question for some of you. When you think about the future of the people of God, what do you feel? What do you feel? Do you feel fear? Do you feel uncertainty? Do you feel hope? Why do you think you feel that? Because here's the thing. And here's what I'm convinced of. Two millennia ago, Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, set in motion a movement that turned the world upside down. He is the same Lord today. And it can happen again. So let me pray, and then we're going to come to the table together. God, this morning we, we show up in this place as a mixed bag. We have big hurts and small cuts. We're noticing what our friends are saying, what our family members are saying. We can feel like things aren't totally right. In fact, the, the cracks seem to show a little bit more over the last three years. And yet we can't shake this, this idea of Tov. We can't shake that you've created us with purpose. That you're about the business of goodness that you want us to participate in that? That you moved heaven and earth to reconcile us and bring us back into this potential that you created us for? And that all culminated in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus.
that we, that we come to the table to participate in. Not just to experience forgiveness and not to experience, just experience grace. But to experience being part of the family and the people of God. And on the night Jesus was portrayed, he told his disciples that sat around him shoulder to shoulder including one who was about to disown him, including one that was about to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. He sat with them. And he passed the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my purpose. And shortly after that, he passed the cup and he said, take and drink this cup. Take and share this cup, for it is my blood shed for you. This is why I'm here. And may this communion table reawaken your imagination, reawaken your participation in the goodness of God. the divine purpose by which you're here, to love, to be a person of peace and mercy, to seek things becoming right and just again, to become part of a family, to seek the rest of the creator and not the exhaustion of the world. This is the table you're invited to. So come to the table. Father, we pray these things. We thank you for this this gift. And we take and eat. Amen.